Good morning, friends. Let's um, get started today by praying Psalm 47. Today is Ascension Sunday, when we remember and reflect on and give thanks for the ascension of our Lord um, to his Father's right hand. Let me introduce this by reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks, Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take us up to himself. Thirdly, that he sends his Spirit as an earnest or as a deposit, by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, and not things on earth. I love that. Um, promise of the ascension, that it is indeed, um, gives us the assurance that we have an advocate before the Father on our behalf in heaven, that Christ's flesh, which is our flesh, um, human flesh, is an assurance that um, he will indeed gather us to himself and to his Father's presence as well in the resurrection, and that even today um, he sends us his spirit as a deposit, as an earnest, as a guarantee of those things that we might, um, with the Spirit's help and power, seek the things that are above. Let's pray Psalm 47, which clearly is a psalm that speaks of the ascension of our Lord in a prophetic way. This is on page 803 of your hymnal. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing to him a psalm of praise. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. Indeed, Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning um, that your Son has gone up on our behalf to your right hand, that he indeed has triumphed and conquered over all his enemies, that he um, rests now and rules over all things. Father, this morning we pray that you would give us an assurance of this promise, um, of this certain hope that we have of the ascension of our Lord and the way that in it we beheld our own um, ascension um, to your presence and the everlasting life that you have prepared for us. I pray that you would give us um, wisdom now as we um, spend this time in preparation for worship as we continue to study uh, matters of sin and temptation, that you would give us um, righteousness, Father, by that same Spirit um, that your Son has poured out. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Thank you for your prayers. As I mentioned, we had a wonderful um, vacation the past couple weeks, uh, 10 days or so. I'm really thankful for that time away with my family and um, the beautiful weather that we experienced and the beautiful place and the time that we had um, extended time to be together. So we're really grateful. I'm grateful for Mike for teaching last week. Um, that was excellent. I really appreciate the summary that you gave of concupiscence. Um, it's a, probably a word that uh, many of us learned um, and, and became more familiar with last week. Um, today we're going to move on to the next statement in the, um, in the study report, which is on temptation. 
Uh, Mike, can I have your help? And maybe David, if you help me too. Oh, David's not here. Jeremy, I assumed that he was still in. Thank you. Very good. Um, this is the last week of our Sunday school class for the spring semester. Um, we, as we typically do, will be taking off the months of um, June, July, and August. So we'll gather again for Sunday school the first Sunday in September. And my plan um, is for us to continue in the adult class to discuss um, the same matters, to continue to work our way through the study report and continue to talk about these issues of sexuality and what the scriptures teach and um, commend for us. Um, so, and also at 10 o'clock, we're going to need to be a little bit constrained today time-wise. Around 10 o'clock, the children are going to come in. We're going to spend a few minutes honoring um, those teachers um, the, who have served our children this past year and, um, and uh, spend some time doing that. So, um, so we'll cut off a little early today. So let me just read through um, this statement. We'll make some comments, and, and obviously we'll have time for discussion if you all have thoughts or questions. So temptation. Um, the study committee writes, we affirm that scripture teaches of temptation in different ways. Um, and it's actually, I don't want to go too far afield on this, but it is an interesting point that in the scriptures, um, the word temptation is used differently in different places. Um, and that is just certainly, it's, an, it's just a fascinating thing about the way that in both Hebrew and Greek, um, a word can be translated differently. It's the same Greek or Hebrew word. It can be translated as test or trial or temptation. Um, and you see that in the English. It comes through the, the translators, the ESV and other translations have made exegetical decisions about which meaning it has in which context. But it's the same Greek or Hebrew word, which is an interesting thing. Um, if you look at that first footnote, um, they point out that in James um, chapter 1, that same word is used, periasimos, um, is used in multiple ways. In um, verse 2, it's translated as, count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of any kind, um, which is, I'm sure, a you know, phrase that you're familiar with. That same word then is used later in verses 13 and 14 to refer to um, the realities we'll look at in a moment, that God never tempts anyone, um, that temptation always comes from outside. It's the same Greek word. Um, so there's a lot, and that's true. You see that same Greek word show up um, you know, when, when the Satan tempted Jesus, that same Greek word is used. Um, when Jesus talks about uh, trials, um, that same word is used. Um, it's true throughout the New Testament. So it, just linguistically, it's just a word that's flexible and has to be determined um, by meaning um, based on the context of how it is used and where it's used. We have English words that function that way, so it's not that alarming or something, um, but it is an interesting thing um, that that word can be translated periosimos as tests in one place or as trials. In another place, it can be translated as temptations or tempting in the verbal form. Does that make sense? So the scriptures, there is some flexibility in the ways that the scriptures teach, speak of temptation. So they try to lay out some of the um, um, ways in which this is true. There are some temptations God gives us in the form of morally neutral trials and other temptations God never gives us because they arise from within as morally illicit desires. Um, illicit meaning unlawful um, or unrighteous. And then they quote from James chapter 1. So let's look at that for a moment. Um, this is a, certainly an important passage. So we think about temptations and trials. 
James 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, and that word testing is the same word um, in verbal form, of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, And then in verses 12 to 14, uh, James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Um, so that, that's a picture of how temptation works. There are a few things about <clears throat> the, the sentence here that I might perfect. Um, I would say that there are some temptations God gives us in the form of, I don't know if morally neutral is really how I would put it. Um, certainly the scriptures seem to teach that the trials that the Lord brings into our lives are good, are morally good. So we might say they're morally good trials, that they're actually um, good for us. They're good in the sense that they are um, intended um, to have that purpose in our lives and they flow from God's own goodness. Um, and other temptations God never gives us. Or we might say God couldn't give us, um, not just that he chooses not to, but um, it is impossible um, for God to lie. It is impossible for God, um, who there is no evil in the triune God, and so that it would be impossible for him um, to, um, to tempt us to sin um, as though sin um, were in himself. Um, so other temptations God never gives us or couldn't give us because they arise from within us as morally illicit desires, and that's, of course, what James is laying out for his readers. Um, when, he's temp- when you're tempted, don't say you're being tempted by God because God cannot, not that God does not, but God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed um, by his own desire. And, and a one way to think about this is, um, you know, God may put you in a situation where um, temptation exists, right? You think about um, a, a man um, who you know, is a farmer or a shepherd, and um, his, his sheep have got out on the hillside there, and one man comes along, and it's a tempting situation here, loose sheep, um, you know, w- maybe I could take them, but this man is an honest man, and so he um, recognizes they belong to his neighbor, and he goes and runs and gets them, and they corral the sheep back, and they return to their proper owner. Um, another man comes by, and he, his, his heart is different, um, he gives in to temptation, um, and he steals the sheep. Um, he takes them away. It's the exact same situation, but, um, but the, the moral quality, the work of the Spirit, really, um, in each of those men in that situation determines how they respond. So that the temptation um, for that second man who steals the sheep doesn't come from God. Yes, the situation is one where sin is possible, and God certainly was providential in putting him in that situation, but the temptation to steal the sheep um, came from within his own heart, his own fallen nature, his own corruption. Yeah, Jeremy. Same word, yep. Mm-hmm. which I think is 
Right. So I didn't, I, I, I didn't know that, but it's funny. It's just like I remember this version of the word prayer being used that was like, give me the place of heaven or temptation. Yeah, the, the Lord's Prayer, the sentiment there, whether regardless how you translate it, temptation or trial, is that you, and it is the same Greek word, priosimos, um, that, that the Lord will be merciful and not um, put us in places that are too overwhelming for us, essentially, that he'll be kind to us, he'll take care of us that he'll deliver us from evil in those places. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, yeah, Genesis 22 is an example of that. Um, it's the, obviously in the Hebrew, but it's the same concept. After these things, God tested Abraham. Um, and that's the same, you know, it's the equivalent word in the Hebrew that can be, has that same kind of flexibility. Can be translated as tempted or tested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so there are examples of that. And Genesis 22, of course, is the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. Um, God tested um, Abraham in that way. And certainly we want to say that God does test us um, even as he tested Abraham, that he tests our faith, our obedience. Our, it's one of the ways that we learn maturity and growing Christ is, is being put in situations where our faith is, is tested. And ultimately um, our faith, it's, there are always questions of faith, right? Um, it's very explicit in Genesis 22, but every situation where sin is possible comes down to the faith that we have in the Lord, his goodness, his, his love, and his provision, those kinds of things, and whether we trust him. Um, when temptations come from without, so they're wanting to continue to clarify what we think about temptation, um, what, is, what does that mean? So, so temptations can't, so this is an important distinction. Temptations can come from without us, not in God, but from without us. When temptations come from without, the temptation itself is not sin unless we enter into that temptation. But when the temptation arises from within us, it is our own act and it is rightly called sin. Um, so they're trying to distinguish between, there are, there are different ways that the word, and this is true. Um, of course, one of the, the subjects of the word temptation in the scriptures is Satan, right? We know that um, Satan is, three primary things that he does in the scriptures. He deceives, um, he accuses, um, and he tempts. They're all kind of variations on the same thing. Um, but um, one of the things that Satan is described to have been doing is that he, he tempts um, those um, who belong to Christ, who belong to God. Um, and, and that's, that, so that temptation, and, and I think, you know, they, they could have, I mean, they're trying to do a lot here with the little amount of words, but certainly they could have talked here more about the role of Satan in temptation. And I think we, you know, as modern people, we don't often talk a lot about satanic activity, but, but certainly there is a role that Satan has, um, even in the lives of believers, that he does tempt us to sin. Um, that's one of the, the means by which the Lord um, tests us and tries us is temptation that comes from from outside of us, and from Satan, or just from the general corruption of the world. Um, so they're trying to make a distinction that there can be temptations that arise from without us, um, outside of us, that are not in themselves sinful, 
um, depending on what we do in response to that temptation, but there are also temptations that just come from our own heart. The corruption of our heart, um, the way in which we're bent um, regarding original sin, and when those temptations exist, those temptations are themselves sinful, um, regardless of how we respond to them. This gets back to the concupiscence question, and even the previous um, week we talked about original sin, um, that, that there are attractions, there are desires that we have um, that are themselves sinful and must be repented of um, continually. Any questions about any of that before we continue on? Being tempted by Satan? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think certainly Job is, Satan is very active in the first part of Job explicitly. Um, I do wonder, this connection is not made explicitly in the text, but it certainly seems that um, the friends that that come act in a satanic way, I think we can say, um, in that they are doing all the things that Satan does. Um, They're accusing Job of wrongdoing, Um, They're deceiving him about the character of his own life and the character of God, and that God is, you know, someone who always, um, if there's bad things in your life, it's because God is angry with you, that kind of thing. And then they're they're tempting him. They're tempting him to curse God, um, tempting him to throw up his hands and, you know, give up, that kind of thing. So, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Rachel. Yes. Yeah, that's a great clarification, right? So Jesus, <clears throat> because um, his nature was not fallen in the same way that ours is, um, yeah, there was no no temptation originated um, within Jesus's own will or desire or heart. There were certainly temp- he was tempted like us um, in every way, in the sense that he was tempted by Satan, obviously. He was tempted by um, just the corruption of the world and the fallenness of of creation, those kinds of things, um, but not from his own heart or will or desire. Yes. Eric, did you have a comment? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd want to say, I mean, th- I think this gets into the, in a, in a future point to talk some about the, this, but we would want to say that <coughs> Jesus, like, because of his divine nature, because he was and is God, was incapable of sin. Um, it doesn't mean he didn't genuinely enter into temptation um, in a real and sincere way, but, but, there was never a moment where Jesus might have sinned, and he didn't, in, in some, um, you know, pure way. Does that make sense? Like, <clears throat> yeah, it's just it's interesting that one of the things that he's tempted in is, is this hunger, mm-hmm. right? The hunger itself is not, like, it's not sinful to be hungry. Right. But the idea is, like, hunger causes, it's like the natural thing about our frail human bodies that might encourage us to steal or to lie mm-hmm. or to do these things. 
Sure. Yes, that's right. That's that's a good point. That certainly sets in a way in which Jesus experienced temptation. That he 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 experienced lack. He experienced um, need physically, um, emotionally, other ways. And you're right. Every every time we're lonely. Every time we're hungry. Every time we're tired. Every time we're um, you know whatever it might be anxious. Um, those are all sort of natural human responses to the world that we live in. But every one of those is. A place of temptation um, because we can respond to those things in ways that are righteous or ways that are sinful um, and that's and Jesus certainly experienced all of those things fully and completely as we do he just did not have the same kind of fallen human nature that where temptation came up from inside him um, by his own out of his own desires or will um, but we are afflicted in that way uh, because of our our first um, uh, father, Adam. Um, nevertheless, so they do want to make a distinction. I think this is important. Nevertheless, there is an important degree of moral difference between temptation to sin, even temptation which arises within us, and giving in to sin, even when the temptation itself is an expression of indwelling sin. And this is really important to think about. Um, um, they they uh, quote... Um, uh, in that footnote there, and in, in um, footnote number three, according to John Owen, James one to four, one fourteen to fifteen describes a five-step process of sin: the mind being drawn away from God, um, the affections being entangled with something that is not good for us, the will then consenting to actual sins. We make the decision to sin, the conversation, and that just means it's an archaic um, t- term just means kind of the manner of life or the choices that you make over a period of time. Um, the conversation or the manner of life wherein sin is brought forth into view, so you really begin to engage in that sin and live in it, and then the stubborn course that finishes sin and ends in death, so the basically the lack of repentance for that sin um, um, that eventually leads um, to spiritual death. Each step of the process, the writers want to say, is worse than the next. And this is important for us to see just pastorally as we think about our own life, our own temptations. We are to be watchful, as Owen says, against all enticements unto the conception of sin, but particularly must carefully attend unto all particular actions agreeable to God's will. Um, Speaking more broadly, the larger catechism teaches that while every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God, some sins are more heinous than others, depending on the person's Offending, the parties offended, the nature of the offense, the circumstances of that offense. Um, so what, what they're wanting us to say is that there is a big difference, basically, between being tempted to sin, even if that temptation comes from your own corrupt heart and desires, and actually engaging in that sin. And then there's a much bigger difference between engaging that sin, um, you know, once, and then repenting of it and confessing it, and there's a, and then... Um, versus dwelling in that sin and, and, and you know not confessing it, not repenting of it, continuing to walk down that path. 
um, that there, there is severity, there are differences in our actions morally. Um, not all sins are equally heinous, to use the words of our catechism. And that's a really important thing for us to think about. It is true um, that we are sinning all the time. Just, that's just true. On uh, a daily basis, hourly basis, whatever you want to say. Um, but part of what it means to grow in righteousness is to realize that I can sin in less terrible ways <laughs> than I did previously, right? I'm, I'm still going to be a sinner all my life, but, but what I want to do with sanctification is not so much stop sinning because that's never going to happen, but what I do want to do is to, um, for my sins to be less horrible over time, less heinous, to use the words of um, the confession. Um, and I think that's an important, to me that gives me a lot of like, like that's something I can work with, you know? Um, if you tell me sanctification means that I just need to stop sinning, well that, I mean, that just seems impossible. And it is impossible when I look at my life and my heart and my actions, my history. Um, but can I begin to sin in less heinous ways over time? I think I can, you know? I think I can respond to temptation more quickly and, and turn away from it. I think um, when I fall into sin, I can, I can more quickly repent and, and not allow it to overwhelm me or, or consume me, those kinds of things. And that, that's something I think is good for us to think about theologically, that there is actual a traject actually a trajectory of the Christian life where we um, can move towards less heinous kinds of sin. Uh, while the goal is the weakening and lessening of internal temptations to sin, and certainly this is something that the Spirit promises us, that as we dwell with Christ, as we um, feed upon the means of grace, as the Spirit works in our heart and makes us more and more like Jesus, that our desires actually do change. And I hope that you have experienced this in your life, in your Christian life, that your desires do actually move away um, from what is sinful and toward what is good. And because, as it turns out, the things that are good are actually satisfying, um, right? Um, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and Jesus satisfies us. Um, he makes that promise. And that, I, th I love the, the beatitude there, because it, it points to that, like, what part of what Jesus does when he makes us his own is he changes our hungers, right? He turns our hungers from things that are unsatisfying, um, things of this world that, that are not good for us, and he makes us able to hunger for righteousness, um, which is a, a beautiful thing. Um, and I, I think that's something we should, we should um, desire and, and see happening in our lives and pray for the Lord to do for us. <clears throat> Uh, we pray We pray far too little, I think, sometimes about the Lord changing our desires, right? Um, but we should pray for that because we need that. We need the Lord to change what we're oriented towards. Um, I think sometimes we can have just sort of like, I don't know, like, well, I'm not really responsible for my desires anyway. You know what I mean? It's just who I am. It's just, I mean, sometimes we can say it's how God made me, which is, a terrible thing to say, because God didn't make us <laughs> have all these desires for things that are not good for us. Um, but it's good. It's good for us to pray for the Lord to actually change not only our actions, but also our affections and our desires, the things that we want in life. Um, Christians should feel, however, their greatest responsibility, not for the fact that such temptations occur, but for thoroughly and immediately fleeing and resisting the temptations when they arise. And I think that's right. Um, that's well put. 
that we should um, particularly focus our attention on how we respond to the things, the temptations that exist in our lives, whether they come just from our own corruption, um, our own sinful desires that the Lord hasn't um, uh, changed entirely yet, or um, from the world outside us, from Satan, um, from um, his minions, from um, the world itself. How do we respond to that temptation? Um, do we thoroughly and immediately flee it? Um, do we resist those temptations when they come up? Um, do we act quickly? Um, that is the, the fundamental question. We can avoid, quote unquote, entering into temptation by refusing to internally ponder and attain the proposal and desire to actual sin. Um, so basically you're saying one of the things, the ways that we flee temptation is just refuse to contemplate sin, um, that sinful action that we might be tempted towards, just to, to put it out of our minds. Um, you know, you could think of a million examples of how um, that could be um, the case, whether it's a temptation towards bitterness or anger towards someone, whether it's a temptation toward a sexual sin, whether it's temptation toward a financial sin, um, toward some kind of deceit um, that we might be tempted to engage in, um, whatever it might be that that fleeing from that sin, immediately resisting it, um, the way that we do that is we refuse to internally ponder and even entertain the proposal and desire to actual sin. We just cut it off. We just move our mind elsewhere, right? We set our mind on things that are above, um, as Paul says in Colossians 3, um, rather than um, earthly things, which is not, don't think about what you're having for dinner, but, um, you know, don't be attracted to the things of this world um, in a sinful way. We are to set your minds on Christ and um, his work, his love, his um, accomplishments. Um, without some distinction between, one, the illicit temptations that arise in us due to original sin, and two, the willful giving over to actual sin, Christians will be too discouraged to make every effort at growth and godliness and will feel like failures in their necessary efforts to be holy as God is holy. Um, and I, again, I just think that's a really important distinction to make, right? That we should distinguish as Christians between the illicit temptations, the unlawful temptations that are sinful that arise within us and actually giving ourselves over to those sins. Um, and the reason for that is because, well, ultimately the reason is because God makes a distinction between those things and that he sees one as more heinous than the other um, and so we should, we should see it as well. And, and, and in that way, we will not grow overly discouraged as we press on toward righteousness, toward holiness, um, toward being made like Jesus. Any thoughts about any of that before I read this last sentence and comment on it? You guys see the distinctions I'm talking about? Absolutely. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you know, it's, 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 it's
Yeah, no, I think it's a really helpful distinction. Yeah, to think about. Yes, Donna. Concupiscence. That's the Roman Catholic the approach to concupiscence, okay. right? Yes. So, mm -hmm. so there's that. Yeah. That's right. No, you got it. You're tracking right along. Because yep. There was, there was Felicity and Roberts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we want to say, as Reformed Christians, um, we can still use the term concupiscence and think about it and talk about it. We just have a different understanding of it than Roman Catholics or others, even within the evangelical world, about. Um, I don't think it's, I think that view that the Roman Catholics have has, in a, an explicit formal way, has certainly filtered down into modern parlance about desire. And they don't. They don't. Um, um, but I think that that I think you it would be pretty easy to find evangelicals that would affirm what Rome teaches that I'm not responsible for my internal desires I'm just responsible for what I do with them yeah why do we make the distinction Well, I think ultimately we want to say, because we believe that, that God makes the distinction, um, that the scriptures teach that, um, that we are responsible for all the things that come out of our hearts, um, that, that, that they're evidence not of just things being sort of off course a little bit, but of our own total fallenness. Um, so I think ultimately that's why we want to make that distinction, is because we think the scriptures do. Um, it, it forces us to reckon with the totality of our sin, um, so it's a, it's a different definition of original sin and total corruption um, than what the Roman Catholic Church would hold would be the biggest difference, I think. What, what God has saved us from um, is not only our, our illicit actions and the way that we res respond to our illicit desires, but he's actually um, saving us from our own hearts and our own false desires and fallen desires. Not if that helps, but that's what I would say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let me just conclude um, with this sentence. Um, God is pleased with our sincere obedience, even though it may be accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Uh, friends, I just I want you to hear that. Um, I think sometimes we don't talk about that enough. God is pleased with what you do in Christ. Um, he is pleased with your sincere obedience. And you might say, well, but it's weak, it's imperfect, if you only knew. And God says, I know. I know that. I know how weak and imperfect it is. And yet I'm still 
pleased by it. I think that's a, a profound promise um, that is related to our union with Jesus and the way that all that we do um, in Christ that is illicit, that is sinful, is pardoned um, through his work. And all that we do that is sincerely holy and good is taken up by him and presented through him to the Father, um, that we actually present ourselves to God um, in obedience. And God is pleased with that. Um, let me read from our Westminster Confession of Faith here of good works in the back side. Um, notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him, in Christ. Not as though they were in this life holy, unblameable, or unreprovable in God's sight, right? Not because our works are perfect, um, that God receives them as perfect, but rather that he, looking upon them in his Son, so through Christ, through our union with him, our Father is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. And friends, you are capable, not, you're not capable of perfect sincerity, but you are capable of some sincerity, we would say, in Christ um, by the work of the Spirit through God's mercy. Not on your own, but because of what the Lord has done when he gave you a new heart and, and made you new um, in Jesus. He's pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere in your obedience, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. And I just think that's important um, to see and to think about that God is actually pleased with the obedience that you render to him, um, even though it is not perfect, it's not all the way, um, it's not as it will be in the eschaton. Um, but the Lord is actually pleased with you. He's pleased with you being in this room right now. Um, honoring the Lord's Day. Um, he's pleased with you as you serve um, your families. Um, he's pleased with you as you resist sin, as you um, learn to speak more and more words of kindness and encouragement um, to those whom you love. He's pleased with you as you put off sexual sin, as you refuse to give in to temptation. Um, he's pleased with you in all these things and more, um, that God delights in this. Um, Hebrews 6, uh, well, two verses that show this, one, Matthew 25, um, the parable of the talents, um, Jesus says, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, I've set you over much, enter in the joy of your master. Those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, they're said to us um, in and through and because of Christ, um, but they're still said to us, well done, the Lord will say to us in the last day. Well done. And then Hebrews 6, this is a precious promise um, Jesus, I mean, sorry, Paul or the apostle is talking to um, the readers about how he doesn't, they, he's warning them against falling away, but he's saying, I'm sure you're not going to fall away. In verse 10, he says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. That's a precious promise, friends, right? God is not so unjust as to overlook your work your obedience, your love, all that you've done in service to others, in service to the saints. Uh, and that's a precious thing for us to hold on to, that God sees our acts of obedience. Um, he sees our acts of love and service, and he accepts them. He's pleased by them in a genuine and real way. All right. Let's, um, any final questions or thoughts before we pray and move towards our recognition of teachers? Very good. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, we give you thanks and praise. Um, we thank you for the way in which you make us holy. 
that you do it, Father, not all at once um, in some way that is foreign to us or um, without our um, participation, um, but that you do it over time and that you use um, the hours of our days and the years of our lives um, to make us like Jesus, that you teach us what it means to resist temptation, even the temptation that comes from our own fallenness, our own illicit desires, Father. You teach us more and more what it means to turn away from evil and cling to good, um, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Father, I pray that we'd be a people who do that, who resist temptation and whose desires over time become more and more trained towards what is good and true and beautiful um, in this world. Father, I pray that you would give us confidence that indeed in Christ you are pleased with the obedience and the faithfulness of your children, even with the men and women and children in this room. Um, Father, that you are pleased with them and their lives and the fruit that is um, being uh, produced um, by your Spirit um, through their actions, through their obedience. I pray that that assurance would be real for us even today. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.